0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Verses 12 through 21, Paul really uh, backs out. And it's kind of like in the movies, you know, in, in, in movies when uh, the, the the action is zeroed in on the guy fighting the battle and all you see is him and his one opponent clashing swords. But then the, the camera pans back and you start to see the wider and wider battle. And you get a whole new perspective when you see not just one man's battle, but the whole war, the whole huge battle going on. And that's kind of what Paul does here. He backs out a wave. Uh, From us as individuals, it really looks at a much more global perspective of what God's grace means and is and does. Um, A great example of this, uh, one of the first ones who really did this with, uh, with epic scale, in my opinion, was in the Star Wars movies. And uh, was Spielberg? Did Steven Spielberg do Star Wars? I don't know. Lucas. Okay, that's probably. I just probably like that's like some kind of blasphemy or something. Whoever it was really did a good job illustrating this idea of epic scale by, by pulling the camera back. And one of, the, one of the best examples of this is when, when you first see the Death Star. Uh, you know, this little spaceship flies out of this thing, and you see kind of up close the spaceship. And then slowly, as the spaceship flies away, the camera backs up, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows until you see the epic scale of this Death Star. And of course, you throw in some really kind of powerful music, and you get this ominous sense that this is bad news. This Death Star is huge, massive. It's like a planet, right? And you get this sense, man, we're in trouble now, right? Because the bad guys had this enormous weapon. Uh, It shows epic scale by pulling back so you can really see the whole scope of something. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. He is backing up because he wants us to see the epic scale of what it is God has done. Sure, he's done something for us individually and personally on one scale, but he wants us to back up and see really the enormity of what God has done on a much bigger and grander scale. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the backdrop. And I want to read uh, these verses. They are a bit confusing, and part of the reason they are confusing when we read them is that Paul starts a thought... And then doesn't complete it for about eight more verses. So let me give you just a little, uh, like if you like drawing lines in your Bible, you could draw these lines. Okay, verse 12 starts a thought. Verse 12 starts a sentence. Paul says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now that version is great because they actually make it a complete sentence. But more literally, it sounds like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And he stops right there, right? And he leaves us hanging all the way down to verse uh, 18, actually. So keep that in mind. So verse 12 really gets completed. It gets restated and completed in verses 18 through 21. Uh, Verses 13 through 17 are a bit of a... Parenthesis. Okay, so I'm going to read it, but keep that in mind. Okay, try to keep that perspective as you sort through this rather tangled linguistic mess that Paul writes here. Uh, and I'll read from the New Living because it does turn some of these broken thoughts into full sentences, which makes it a little easier. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit, explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ, who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sins of this one man, Adam, cause death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Now he picks back up his original thought, starting in verse 12. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, So it becomes clear that what Paul is is going to illustrate by the title of my message also is God's superabundant grace. Uh, He wants us to get some scale of the magnitude of, of what God's grace is. So as we look at this, let's see if we can sort out this rather tangled and confusing narrative of Paul and and boil it down into some key thoughts we can we can grab hold of. Uh, what he's talking about here mostly is the power of one. Uh, he wants us to get an idea of, of the effects of just one act and what its powerful consequences can be. Uh, and he does this um by contrasting the one man, Adam, and his one deed with the one person, Christ, and his one deed. And that's what this whole thing is about. And he goes back and forth between the one man, Adam, and the one man, Christ, contrasting what their single acts produced. Okay, So, so that's, that summarizes all of what Paul is saying here. Um, and he says it in, in this way in, in verse 12. There, uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death does spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, verse 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So he's talking about these single power effectiveness of one defining deed or act. Um, and he's comparing these two. Now, Seems simple enough, but the reality is that if we are honest about the world we live in, uh, this is kind of a radical concept because we live in a, in a day and an age and a time when we recognize how amazingly complex everything is, right? We're sitting here in a building. This building was not built by just one deed, right? Somebody didn't just throw a seed in the ground and poof, a building popped up. We're sitting in a place with many complex systems like electronic gadgets that don't work, right? like uh, roofs and ceilings and floors and things and windows that are all different parts built oftentimes in different places and brought and assembled. Right? Um, we we drove here this morning in cars. Cars are amazingly complex machines with many different systems and parts that all work together. Uh, a car is not the result of one deed or act. Right? It's It's the impressive collaboration of Many uh, engineers and designers and machinists and machines putting together all of these parts and systems into one thing that works, right? And that's kind of the world we live in. So for us, it's kind of hard for us to imagine often that one deed or act could really go very far, right? Even, Even when you look at very simple things like the human cell, you know, back in Darwin's day, he was convinced that a, a human cell, a single living cell, was like the building block of the universe, and he envisioned this simple cell uh, mutating and adapting. But as scientists later have discovered, a cell is in itself a huge factory with very complex systems and parts in a single living human cell. And all these parts work together and coordinate and communicate in just incredible ways, right? So... uh we could look at Paul's example here and go, well, this is a dumb example, Paul. Don't you know the world we live in is not that simple? One deed, one act, just can't have those kind of far-reaching consequences. You know, it's not the world we live in. Um, perhaps the best example of this is really global economics. Right? Uh, I love how you, know, you read the news and if you try to follow global economics, if you want to know, is th- are things getting better or worse? You know, That's a depressing, fun subject. Uh, Next year, am I going to have more money or less? Short answer, you'll have less. Okay, it's it's a given. Um, And here's why. Numerous events can impact our economy. So the price of crude oil in the Middle East combines with elections somewhere in Greece, uh, along with wars in Afghanistan and protests in Bangkok, uh, combines with a drought in Africa and a flood in the southern U.S. to create a global economy, right? And all of those things, no single one of those things influences everything. Uh, they all work together to create this very complex global economy. And so it's a guessing game. You know, is is the bot going to be stronger or weaker? What's the economy going to be like? Is it going to grow or shrink? So in light of all that, um, it can be, this, this illustration of Paul's can seem kind of pointless, right? But it is a good illustration. And the truth is, that even in our day, with all of our complex stuff going on, one simple misdeed can have devastating results. And uh, I have a picture up here of a forest fire to illustrate that. Uh, it, this, this, is, this isn't just any forest fire; this is kind of a fun forest fire because right in the middle, it's, you can't see it very well, but there's a tour bus, <laughs> right? And I uh, don't, yeah, they they paid extra money actually for this tour. Actually, that's not true. Uh, the bus got stuck there in the middle of this fire. And this fire is actually on Mount Carmel in Israel. And this last year when Denise and I got to go to Israel, we drove across Mount Carmel and drove through a lot of this burned area. And this, uh, it, it had, the fire was actually in 2010. So what we saw were the charred remains of thousands of acres that had been burned in this fire. Right. So how did the, how did the fire start, you ask? Well, this is a fun story. A 14-year-old boy from Mount Carmel region admitted to throwing a piece of burning coal into the forest and causing what later became the largest and most devastating forest fire in Israel's history, at least in modern history. Uh, Police arrested the teen early, uh, early, and and he admitted during his interrogation to smoking a hookah pipe in the forest. Now, the question is, who knows what a hookah pipe is? I don't know. How do you know that? How do you know that? I had to look it up. Okay? It's a water pipe used for smoking things. Okay? Uh, so he's out in the in the forest smoking a suka pipe and he takes his little burning coal that he used to light his tobacco and he throws it off. And instantly it starts this huge inferno. Um, uh causing the and that caused the fire to erupt. The 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 Carmel fire claimed 41 lives and destroyed over 12,000 acres of land in the Car- Mount Carmel region. Okay, Can one deed have great uh, impact and consequences? Yes, right? Yes, it can. Even in our complex world, one simple stupid act can have devastating consequences. 41 people lost their life in that fire and uh, Israel has worked very hard to reforest a lot of their mountains. And now Mount Carmel is this huge, black, charred mountain. Uh, and it was not the fire of God that fell this time. right, It was a coal from a hookah pipe. Um, and Paul, and I'm going to use this illustration throughout this, the message because it's a great picture of what Adam set in motion when Adam sinned. And, and basically Paul contrast, one wrong move with one right move. So let's look first at the one wrong move. Uh, Adam did something incredibly stupid. And Paul describes it in these words. Uh, he says that that it was what one man did and, and one action. Now again, to get the perspective of this, Paul is not here describing everything we need to know about sin. Okay, He's not here talking about our own personal sinfulness. Okay, He's talked about that a lot in chapters 2, 3, and 4. Uh, He's talking about something different here. So he's not explaining everything there is to know about sin or how it got here, but he's pulling the camera way back to give us this broad perspective of all humanity from Adam onward and what state or condition we're in. And he says that the state and condition that all humanity is in is the result of one man's foolish misdeed. Okay, One man's foolish misdeed. He puts it this way. He said sin came into the world through one man. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass or mistake. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's single sin. For judgment, uh, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, and he continues on, Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And finally, verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, this is a hard concept for us to grasp, but the reality is that when Adam sinned, when Adam made the bad choice of choosing the wrong food off the menu... Which, by the way, was his only crime. God said, "Don't order the, you know, the apple," and Adam ordered the apple and ate it. Right? He ordered the wrong food off the menu. wasn't a huge crime, wasn't uh, a terribly wicked crime in terms of how we might evaluate things, but it was clearly disobedience. God said, "Don't do that." It's the only thing God said, "Don't do." God said, "You can eat whatever you want. I only give you one restriction, only one thing I ask you not to do: don't eat the tree of uh, the fruit of that tree." And that's exactly what Adam did. And in that one seemingly insignificant misdeed, in that one seemingly petty disobedience, Adam plunged the whole human race into death and sin. And it says there, and this is a hard one for us to grasp, but it's very clear in Paul's language, that we all sinned in Adam. Now he doesn't explain what that means. Uh, Theologians have kind of taken two broad approaches to this. One is that, something happened internally to Adam when he sinned, that he somehow uh, rewired his DNA to go from an innocent, uh, pure uh, person who was not sinful to one who now had a sinful, broken sin nature. And uh, genetically he passed that on, and so we have all become inheritors of his sin nature. Paul doesn't actually use that language here, though. Uh, it sounds great, and it may be true, but that, Paul doesn't talk about that here. He doesn't say that in those words. Uh, a lot of other theologians argue that what it means is that we all actually sinned in Adam. That genetically we were all there, uh, that, that he is a representative of our race, and that literally when Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. And it's this kind of sense of corporate identity that in Adam we participated with him in his sinful deed. Um, I don't know which of those is true or if it's a combination of both. doesn't really matter. The point is, when Adam sinned, two horrible things happened. Uh, Actually, he he describes it as three horrible things happened. Uh, First of all, he says we all became sinners. Every human being then instantly became born sinful creatures and beings. So even though uh, a small child may not uh, willfully disobey until they're older, they naturally sin without being taught or trained. Right? They're born sinners. Right? They, from, from their earliest days, are defiant, are sinful, do selfish um, things. Um, it says that uh, we all sin. Secondly, it says that we all died. All right? We all died in Adam. Uh, and Paul uses language only about death, but he says that death ruled or reigned. Right? So when Adam sinned, death now became sovereign ruler over all humanity. So that uh, we all are now governed and ruled by death. Is it physical death or spiritual death? Yes. <laughs> you know, we died physically. We died spiritually. Uh, and thankfully, we all still, uh, you know, thanks to Adam, are still being ruled by death. Even with spiritual salvation, death still rules over our mortal bodies, Paul says later. So we became sinners. We died. And thirdly, we are all condemned and guilty before God. We're all condemned and guilty before God. Uh, we all incur God's wrath and judgment. All humanity, right? From Adam onward. So it's, so. It's Paul scopes back, the magnitude of what Adam did is huge. Okay, we're talking about a massive forest fire here. Okay, When he threw out his little coal, the blaze that he ignited is enormous, is of epic scale because it affects every human being, every offspring, every descendant of Adam through all time from Adam until the last person is born. Okay, Huge fire. Okay, He set in motion this blaze that is enormous and affects every human being and brings to every human being sinfulness, uh, death, and condemnation, God's wrath and judgment. Uh, and I won't read through all those verses, but uh, I encourage you to go back and read through uh, as, as uh, Paul spells out clearly that Adam's one sin, one act, resulted in all these things. Uh, what a blaze has been set by the careless act of Adam, and it truly does explain why people are the way they are, right? Uh, throughout the world, people want world peace. Uh, they're pursuing peace talks in Israel, peace talks in Africa, uh, in Iran, Afghanistan, uh, Burma, right? We got this idea that somehow. Uh, Mankind can be good enough. We can put forward a good foot, a good foot. We can, through tolerance, I love that word, tolerance and kindness, we can become a more peaceful world where we can live together in harmony. And we can all teach the world to sing perfect harmony, right? And people believe this, right? But Paul says, no, no. That will never happen. The world will never be at peace as long as man is in charge. Because we are ruled by sin, death, and condemnation. We are wickedly selfish beings who look out only for ourselves. And it is really only by God's grace that there's peace anywhere. Right. Uh, That is the the forest fire set ablaze by Adam. Um, The good news, though, is that Uh, there is also one incredible solution, right? So Paul says, this is what Adam did. But the good news is that there was also one who came after him, to whom Adam is a picture or a type, who also did one thing. But his one thing had such incredible power that it reversed the effects of Adam. And of course, that person is Christ. Uh, But before we get there, we have to back up a little bit and and think about this. Um, You know, if you start a forest fire, sure, it takes one tiny coal thrown out of the hookah pipe to start a blaze uh, and start this huge inferno. But many would argue, you know, once you start a mess like that, once you start a blaze like that, stopping the fire is not so simple, right? Uh, back when I was much younger and much stronger, I, uh, fought forest fires. And I, I know what it takes to put out even a small fire. It's a ton of work. And it involves usually an army of guys with hoes and shovels digging a ditch all the way around the fire and setting backfires and airplanes dropping, uh, water and slurry. And it usually takes days, weeks, even months to control or contain a forest fire. It's not as simple as waving a magic wand. Right, it's not something one person can do. And uh, some people would say, you know, if that's the blaze that Adam set, what could possibly stop it? Okay, it affects all of humanity over all time. Death is ruling and reigning. How could any one person, by any one deed, stop it? And certainly, humanly speaking, it is impossible. Humanly speaking, there is no army, no resources, no money that can put a stop to the blaze that Adam started. But what Paul wants to remind us here is that God is so much bigger than all that. And, of course, the truth is that one event can stop a forest fire, right? The one event is what? A rainstorm, right? One rainstorm can do what 5,000 men cannot, right? If God chooses to send rain at the right time, the fire's gone. In fact, if he chooses to send enough rain, he can make it to where it's impossible to start a fire. I know that from experience as well. Um and so 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 Paul is going to switch gears he's going to say look through Christ there was one solution to the problem but before he gets to Christ he he asks one question and uh, if you're a Jew you know he starts with Adam he jumps to Jesus but in between for the Jews in between Adam and Jesus was who Moses okay Moses is kind of a big important character in in Israel and so in verse uh 20, he says this. um, Well, in verse 13, he says this. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. uh, But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So he says, look, so before Adam, sin reigned. People were sinful. God could not hold them to the same degree of accountability before the law. Uh, but after the law, he certainly could and did. Right? So the Jews thought this. They thought, well, you know, um, the law is certainly the remedy to the problem. Adam sinned. Adam set this blaze on fire. And they had this idea that the law was the remedy, that the law would be the means to build this fire line and contain this out-of-control situation. And uh, Paul battled this his whole life, this wrong idea about law. This is his only answer, verse 20. This is what he says about the law. Verse 20, he says, The law came to increase the trespass. The law came to increase the sin. Right? Going back to the fire illustration. If a fire is small enough, like like the flame of a candle burning on top of a birthday cake, you can put it out by blowing on it, right? Unless it's one of those stupid trick candles. You, know, you keep blowing on it, it keeps reigniting, right? But you can blow out a fire with a breath. But as a fire gets a lot bigger and you blow on it, what does it do? Does it put the fire out or accelerate it? It accelerates it, right? Worst enemy of a fire fireman firefighter is wind, right? Because it fans the flames to burn hotter and faster and and stronger, right? Paul says simply this: the law was not given as a remedy. In fact, the The effect of the law is it fanned the flames even greater and higher. It didn't solve anything. It only caused sin to spread and increase. Right? It only blew it farther out of control. And it did that one of two ways. One, it made us more aware of how sinful we really were. What before we thought was okay, now when the law came, we see it's not okay. What I thought was not sin, I see now is violating God's moral standard. Secondly, it causes sin to, to expand and increase because it tempts us to do things we were not tempted to do before. Uh, one guy, I don't remember who said this, but he's quoted as saying, don't put the Ten Commandments up on the wall in my courtroom. It just puts bad ideas into people's heads. right? Mm-hmm. Things that they didn't think of before. You go, oh, I had never thought of that one. I think I'll try that. Right? Uh, sin has that effect of, increasing temptation. and Paul talks about that later in Romans as well. Uh, So he says, look, the law is not a remedy. In fact, the law has only served to make things worse, to cause things to burn more out of control. But he says the good news is the one righteous deed of Christ was enough to quench the flame. It has been the rain of God pouring down to put out... Uh, the results, the horrible, terrible results of what Adam has done. Uh, let me read through uh, how he puts this. He says uh, in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift of by by the grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. Okay, the free gift abounded for many. We'll come back and talk about some of these words because they're real important. But circle or highlight. Remember those words. How much more, and abounded and free gift. Okay, those are key words. Verse sixteen. Again, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass, one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. It wasn't a problem for Jesus that sin affected every human being. It was no problem for him to cover the sins of all humanity by his one act of righteousness. Verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Amazing words, okay? How much more will will those who receive the abundance of grace, okay? Get this picture. The storm rolls in and it is loaded with rain. And down comes this torrent of grace. right? This torrential downpour of grace that covers everything. That smothers the fire. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Paul is trying to pull back the camera and show that Christ's death is totally sufficient for all sins for all mankind to snuff out the effects of what Adam started. Right? Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, um, Jesus' death is sufficient. It's adequate. It is, as he says, more than enough, right? And to describe this, uh, Paul really, uh, focuses on this idea of grace. And what he's really describing here is, is, uh, is Jesus' death as an all-sufficient sacrifice. But more than that, he's really talking about God's grace that prompted Jesus' death, right? And he uses the word grace, uh, in compound form here where he stacks up the words grace on grace. Uh, in in Greek, the word grace and the word gift are very similar. And in several places, he talks only about the grace, but he talks about the grace gift, right? Because he wants to emphasize the fact that what God has done for us, the one deed of righteousness that made it possible to undo the effects of Adam's sin, comes to us as a measure of God's abundant grace. Uh and to emphasize it, he uses some really big words uh, to um, to exaggerate his point. And let me show you those real quickly. Uh, I won't give you a, a huge Greek lesson, but a short Greek lesson. Um, first of all, he uses several times he uses the word "how much more," "how much greater." Okay, and the idea is this: Adam foolishly started this blaze, right? Now, if Adam's stupidity could do that, how much greater is the intentional, purposeful act of God in undoing it, right? Is what God does equal to or greater than what a man could do? Well, Paul says it's so much greater. How much more is what God has done in Christ than what Adam did? Secondly, he uses the word abound in three different forms in this passage. First one is in verse. Um, uh, I'm not sure. He uses it first in a common sense that grace abounds. Second time he uses it in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man abounded for many. The word abounded there means to abound or overflow to be abundantly furnished with, to have an abundance or a, affluence. Okay, it's a, it's a flood. It's an overflowing flood of grace. Uh, then in verse 17 he uses another word, a different word, but it gets translated the same. It says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, the grace gift of righteousness literally, reign in life. Okay, now this word is a, is a different word uh, and it it technically means um, abundance or super abundantly okay abundance or super abundantly um, then finally he uses it again in verse uh, uh, later in verse seventeen um, he uses he uses the same word but he adds this, adds the word hyper to it okay hyper so he uses super abundant and then he he has hyper super abundant right. Okay, you get the point? He's trying to emphasize here that God's grace is huge. is huge, right? Going back to the Death Star image, because I know you love that one, right? Death Star pulls back. Death Star comes into view, and you see this Death Star is enormous, okay? And it's scary. It's huge. It's epic in its scale, right? But, and Thankfully, Lucas, for the, the dramatic effect, stops the camera just shy of the set, right? But if he were to pull back the camera further and show the whole set, we would all go, aww, right? Because what we would see is that the desk car is actually a little model about this big, right? And you see some guy up there who's holding it like this, right? And you go, oh, that's just lame, right? You pull the camera back far enough, and all of a sudden comes into view a much grander scale, Right? Well, that's what Paul's trying to do here with words. He says, "Yeah, you know you pull back the camera to a point and you see the death star, you see the consequences of what Adam did, and it's horrible. it is huge, it is epic in scale. But let me pull the camera back even farther to show you something even more epic and more magnificent, more grand, more glorious, more huge. And as he pulls back, you see the mighty hand of God, right that is poised to crush the Death star. And you see that the Death Star is nothing in comparison to the epic scale of God's hand of grace. Right? That's what he's trying to say here. That's why he piles up these words. The super abundant grace gift of God. Right? When you pull it back to its greatest scale, God's grace is enormous. It is huge. It is beyond anything that Adam could do. Right? It is enormous. It is abundant grace, super abundant grace. Um, As the fire grows, the cloud above it grows a thousand times more, right? As the flames increase by the law, the grace of God increases a thousand times more, right? God in his infinite goodness has infinite grace that he has made available for you and I. So what does this mean for us? Well, let me put it in just a couple of perspectives. First of all, uh, he he uses this amazing phrase. He says that that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says that this grace is supposed to reign in our life. Uh, He says the same thing further up when he talks about uh, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through Christ. Okay, what what Adam did is cause us to all fall under the rule or reign of death. right? But But Paul says this is the effect of what grace and the grace gift have done for us. Two things. First of all, grace now reigns or rules in our life. Grace now reigns or rules in our life. And here's the, the good news. Uh, none of us, you know, I don't care what you have done, the good news is that not one single person on planet Earth has ever done anything with as devastating a consequences as Adam, right? Okay? None of you can mess things up as bad as Adam did. Okay? That's Adam's unique single notoriety. Right? He's going to have a T-shirt in heaven that said, nobody messed up things as bad as I did, right? Because he sent the whole of human race and human history down the tubes, right? I don't care how bad you mess it up. You can't do that, right? Because it's already done, right? Now, certainly, uh, it's possible to sin in a way that's more evil or wicked than Adam did, because what he did on a relative scale of morality wasn't that horrible. There are more heinous crimes. But there are none with worse consequences, right? So I don't know what the worst thing you have ever done is. It's nothing compared to what Adam did, right? It is nothing. Nothing. Okay, you got nothing on Adam. But, but this is the picture. He says that Adam, who, whose, whose consequences of sin are millions of times greater than anything you and I have ever, or could ever do, is no match for the grace of God, right? So if Adam's and the consequence of his sin are no match for the grace of God, what does that say about your sins and the relatively small and insignificant consequences, you know the good news is none of us probably, I would hope that none of us have the scale of eternal consequences that, that Adam did. Of course, our, our sin is eternal, and its consequences are eternal. If God could cover what Adam did, he can cover what you did. Your worst sin, all of them. It is no match for his grace, right? Grace can reign in our life. And so, there, there is no, pieces later, there is no condemnation, right? There is to be in us no sense of guilt. We have been, by the righteous deed of Christ, we have been made right with God by His grace, right? And all of your sins are wiped away, washed away by His grace, right? Uh, secondly, it says we are to we are, to, we are to reign in life, right? We are no longer slaves. We are no longer under the domination of sin and, and death, right? Grace now rules in us, and grace has given us the ability to reign in life, right? Life is not supposed to be for us a series of defeats and, and failures right. and washouts, Right? We are to rule. We are to reign. And what gives us the power to do that is God's grace at work in our life. Our life should be characterized, first of all, by His God's overwhelming forgiveness and grace in our own life. Secondly, we are to be people who rule, who reign, through grace towards others. Right. So the overwhelming nature or character of our life ought to be one of grace, of forgiveness, of compassion, of kindness, right? of living out the same thing that God did toward us, toward others. Right? We are to reign in life through grace by Christ. Okay? Uh, are we living in that kind of grace? Well, there are scholars and people who have used this passage to argue that since what Adam did affected all people universally... And all people are now fallen in sin. Therefore, what Jesus did also affects people universally. And therefore, all people are now saved whether they want to be or know it or not. Right? And that all people are going to heaven and all people are reigning in life free from sin and death. But if you read carefully, that's not what it says. It says, those who receive God's grace gift have life and reign. Right. Daily... We need to be receiving the gift. right? Daily, God is extending to you His grace gift. He wants you to walk and live uh, flooded by His grace. Uh, are you living there? Right. Are we living there daily, operating on the principle that, yeah, I'm a sinner, I mess up, I make mistakes, I set fires all around me, But God's grace is bigger than that. And I don't have to beat myself up. I don't have to condemn myself. I don't have to let others condemn me. I live by grace. I am forgiven by the overwhelming flood of God's kindness towards me.